Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves, the proper relationship between the individual and the state. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we confess that a little intellectual elite can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. That order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The international order that we have worked for generations to build. And today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today we're going to take a break from the planned outline and the planned order of episodes given recent events and things that are going on. So we just finished up with the interview with Steve Guerra, a lot of historical stuff, and we did get into some things looking towards the future and some possibilities that might come up. And in some of the following interviews, especially the one with Panoptic, we get into these types of things even more. And a lot of these things that I've been talking about and been bringing up and that we've been discussing just a little bit here and there so far has been things that are really starting to show up in the current events that are going on right now with the coronavirus. So I wanted to take an episode or actually probably a few episodes and kind of go over these things so that I can highlight some of these aspects that are actually playing out in real time and show them as an example of what I've been talking about. And the main thing I'm referring to is this shift, just like during the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, you had that huge power shift that we have discussed already. There were gigantic economic changes, political changes, just all kinds of different societal changes that occurred in that time period through roughly the Reformation, and things changed a lot. And the parallel that I've been making between then and now is that we will have a shift to a new economic order, possibly more of a technocratic governance system that's more worldwide but also more regional. And it's an interesting pairing there, but it's something that I have come across in my research. It really does pair up very well. There are some major comparisons between a shift to a technocracy and the shift during the Reformation to uh, nation states and the church kind of losing their role. And so I kind of want to go off of this because I'm seeing a lot of that now. When we look at the response to the coronavirus, a lot of the response is regional. You have governors and mayors and individual states. I'm in the U.S., so that's my main reference point. And you have these regional players that are really making a lot of decisions here. It's kind of a similar trend that's been going on. You've had states that have gone against the federal laws against marijuana. You've had states that um, have had cities that have broken away from these states themselves in some regards, such as sanctuary cities, where they are doing their own thing apart from the state. And you've got all these different, more regional kind of power grabs, I guess, or you could say more rebellious 
tendencies that are starting to show. And we see that a lot more now as well, but less on the rebellious side and more on the action side where there are regional responses to the coronavirus. And these decisions are being made on the city level, on the county level, on these more regional levels, on the state level, not as much on the national level. It There are decisions being made at the national level, no doubt. Just like if you look at the time of the Reformation, the church still did exist. It's not like it just disappeared. It still existed, and it still had lots of power. But there were shifts. Things were decentralized. The church broke up into many different denominations. Power was definitely shifted to, number one, to the leaders in what became the nation states, but also power shifted to more regional areas. And uh, you could probably look at that as the different denominations that split off as the different regional players, so to say. And that's kind of my comparison here is that the national governments are having responses, but they're not necessarily, in general, being praised for those responses. It's usually the regional responses that are getting a lot of media coverage and that are getting majorly praised or majorly getting a lot of backlash. It just kind of depends. But number one, you see this this shift to the regional action that has just become so much more prominent now during this crisis. And at the same time, you also see a lot more coverage of international organizations. The World Health Organization in particular has been getting the most media coverage probably out of anybody, and they are a major player in the international world. You also have some foundations. I'll mention the Event 201 scenario by the Gates Foundation and Uh, The Gates Foundation itself, as well as Bill Gates himself, have definitely taken the spotlight in a lot of ways and gotten a lot of media attention and coverage as well in their response to this crisis. And there are other foundations that are playing a big role. And so you see that there are more international groups, international corporations. You have corporations that are making masks and changing their factories and operations to make other things or donating large stockpiles of medical supplies. All of these things usually being done on their own outside of a national order. Some are even going against national orders and doing different things. So you see that corporations are starting to take a little more power. And just given the scenario, they have a little more power than they did before because they are needed. Same thing with world organizations. They are taking a little more power. And given the scenario, a global pandemic it makes sense that they would play a bigger role. And regions are, localized regions are playing a bigger role than they had in the past. And that also makes sense because this really is something that affects every individual and every local community. And so it makes sense that that would happen. So I'm not saying that all this is a huge conspiracy. I'm just saying that there are trends. And I've been saying this the whole time that history has patterns, it has trends, it has things that happen that we can look at and compare and follow and use as an example to better understand what's going on. And this is a trend that is actively playing out that I have been talking about in these interviews for a while. And it is actually taking place to a degree in the current situation that's going on with the coronavirus. 
Now, I should start off by giving, I guess, my opinion and my take on what's going on, what the coronavirus is, all of these types of things. I have covered plenty of corruption and conspiracy in the past, and I am very fluent in those areas. And there are definitely many different um, conspiracy theories that are going on out there, and none of them really can be verified at this point in time. So I just want to go ahead and say my opinion. My opinion is that there is a virus that is going around. It is respiratory. It is a big deal for many people. We, My wife and I have friends that are nurses in multiple different states, and they've talked about people they've come in contact with and that they've been treating and kind of the state of things. So the conspiracy theories that say it's just all made up and it's just a bad flu season, it, that's not really... It doesn't seem to be factual from the information that I have. I do believe that this is a real thing. I believe that it has hit China and all different kinds of places around the world. And I do believe that there is a real risk here and that it is having a major impact and that there should be responses to it. So that's kind of more the fact-based opinion that I have. Then the other thing that I'm looking at, I'm talking about parallels historically, and a big one that really keeps popping up in my mind is 9-11. So when you look at 9-11, it seems to me to be a very similar event with very similar attributes. You've got something that did factually happen. Now, some people say that the towers were never attacked, and uh, I don't really know that theory all that well, but some people say that the attacks never happened or that planes never hit the buildings. I guess that's the way I should clarify that. Some people believe that planes never hit the buildings and they were just demoed and came down. So the actual terrorist attack itself did not happen. That was just a cover-up and a conspiracy. And I don't really believe that personally. And so with that, I would say that the towers did get hit by planes. The towers did collapse. There were thousands of people that died. There was involvement with terrorist organizations in the Middle East, such as Al-Qaeda. And so I would say that that is a real thing. A response to that is something that does make sense. That having an impact on an entire country, a major social impact, that makes sense. But when you dig into a lot of these things, there's a lot of things that are a little bit questionable, such as the fact that the military was running drills the morning of, of planes being hijacked and then crashed into buildings. And then the president at the time, Bush, came out and said, well, you know, it's a lack of imagination. No one could have guessed that people would hijack planes and crash them into buildings even though you were just running simulations of that the day of. So that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I'll talk about Event 201. Uh, That's another thing in this modern parallel with the coronavirus, where there actually was a simulation ran of this exact scenario that we're going through right now, just a few months before it happened. So um, there's definitely a parallel there. The other thing would be that with 9-11, the people responsible for that were probably al-Qaeda. There is very likely to be some CIA involvement and some other, there's Israeli ties and Saudi ties and lots of very interesting things when you dig into who the hijackers were, how they got into the country, different things like that. And so 
you can see that there was involvement with state agencies. The CIA was the one that armed and funded bin Laden to begin with to fight the Russians in Afghanistan. And we are the ones that moved them around to different countries and had a certain way of doing that. That certain way was also used for the hijackers during 9-11. And so there's a lot of things that uh, just seem a little bit fishy. And the problem might have just been created by ourselves intentionally or not. People definitely vary on that opinion. But also the same is true of the reaction afterwards, where people were really afraid of terrorists and terrorism, and there were other terrorist attacks that occurred after 9-11. However, in general, the average American was not necessarily any less safe or at any more of a risk of being attacked by a terrorist after 9-11 as they were before 9-11. Now, that may have changed, and the reason it might have changed is because the U.S. then started invading countries in the Middle East, killing thousands of people, thousands of innocent people, in addition to thousands of other maybe not-so-innocent people. And uh, it turns out that people get a little upset when you kill their friends and family and invade their country, and so there is some retaliation there and some revenge that is sought after. So, uh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So in that sense, yes, people probably were less safe after 9-11 than before, but probably it is our own fault, I would say. Another thing about the reaction to 9-11 would be that the U.S. put into effect a lot of different laws and a lot of different agencies that didn't exist before that. Things like the Patriot Act and Homeland Security and the TSA and all of these things that really ramped up and all came out on the red carpet right after 9-11. Now, the Patriot Act was written before 9-11, but it was definitely a convenient time to go ahead and roll that out. That seems very similar to some of the bills that are being presented today during the coronavirus pandemic, such as um, one good example that is relevant to other episodes I've covered, such as the blockchain ones, is the idea of a digital dollar that has been in at least three different bills so far as of this recording at the beginning of April in 2020. And that is not something that they just wrote a 1,400-page bill for the day before or even the week before. That bill has largely been written for a while, sitting on the shelf, waiting for a good time. Same with the Patriot Act. Largely, that was already written and waiting, but the American people would have never been on board with allowing the government to legally spy on them and collect all of their data, their emails, their text messages, their phone calls, you know, all this stuff, that would not have gone over very well. But after 9-11 and terrorism, then people are all about it. And they're actually asking the government, begging the government, please take all this data, take all of our information, take away our privacy so that you can protect us from terrorism. And we see a very similar thing today with the coronavirus, where it's national government, please declare martial law. Please tell us what we can and can't do. Please tell us when we can and can't leave our own homes. Please control the economic system. Give us a new one, even, or a new digital dollar, or whatever it ends up being. We're in the middle of this. I don't know. But you do see that individual citizens and individual areas are definitely responding this way, where they are looking to the government to 
basically run things, to take over, to have a response and a very authoritarian response, which is very anti-American, I would say. It's kind of against the classically liberal values that America was founded on, but same thing happened in 9-11. The response that was sought after was something that was very very against what the country was founded on, such as invading foreign countries and taking away freedoms and spying on citizens. That was the complete opposite of what the founding fathers, even the Federalist founding fathers, actually wanted. And we see the same thing today, again, where we are giving up a lot of our freedoms, we are giving up a lot of our liberties and These are not being rebelled against. Not a lot of people are going against that or talking against that. A lot of people are actually asking for it. There are multiple states and cities that actually have the National Guard there that have declared martial law as of this point in time. There could be more in the future. There is a lot of crazy stuff that's going on that if I would have said this, you know, two years ago that these things would happen, no one would probably believe me. But... Here we are, and it has happened, and it is happening. So, very interesting. But this 9-11 parallel, I, I see playing out in many different ways, in many different aspects, and that's something that I might reference and refer back to as we go along. But as for my view on what's going on, apart from the more factual basis, there there is more stuff. So, to me... I am not necessarily 100% on the idea that this is a controlled demolition of our current economic and political order and everything is going to change after this event. Some people believe that that is the case. Some people that I follow and listen to, and it is possible, I would say. I have personally felt like there will be a event, I would say the event that will happen and that will cause this shift to a totally new system, kind of like the 30 years war was the event, even though it wasn't a single event, it was 30 years or more. And so I would expect something similar to that to happen. I have called before for an I-9-11, something that the internet goes down worldwide or something like that, something that is maybe more economic or technological. I did not believe that this would be an actual war. The I-9-11 idea I got from either James Corbett or Media Monarchy, I don't know, those are two people that I listen to that are more focused on the corruption and conspiracy side of things and takes on current events. And so they've talked about this as well. But that's something that I do believe will happen. And I do believe these shifts will happen. I have been talking about these shifts happening. And here we are seeing some of those things starting to play out to some degree. But I personally am not sold on the fact that this is the event and the shift. It could end up being that. I don't know. I also talked previously on some episodes related to the current economic system of the U.S. and the world and some of the issues that are going on with that, with the potential for mass inflation and the massive amounts of debt on every single level from the nation to the corporations to individual citizens, that that's going to catch up and that's going to have a problem, that we are overdue for a major stock market crash. And here we are, and those things are starting to play out. So uh, again, this could be the event. This could be where a lot of change happens, more like the catalyst for this shift into a technocratic world. But I don't know. I'm still not sold. We're in the middle of this. We will see how it plays out. But regardless of whether this is the event or just 
an event, there are things to pay attention to very much. So with taking this stance of at least my opinion that this is more an event than the event, I think it is just another step further. It's kind of like a test run where they're laying the groundwork, the foundations, the infrastructure for the event and for an actual shift. Now, this may sound a little strange if you have not listened to season one and especially the corruption conspiracy section. Uh, Heads up, there are groups and there are people that actually do want to control the human race, control certain societies, control whole political systems. Yes, these people and groups do exist. And yes, they do have a lot of power. And I have shown that and proven that through previous episodes. So if you are not caught up, go back and listen to some of that stuff. Um, Otherwise, this may not uh, sound very realistic, I guess, if you are uninitiated to these types of things. But there are those that feel these ways, and they do want to take control, and they do want to have a more authoritarian, elitist um, kind of control over society as a whole, worldwide. And there are power players that do this to some degree. And so with that, I believe that many of them are definitely laying more groundwork, laying more infrastructure for taking more control for these shifts that I've been talking about, a lot of these things are being laid. In order for the shift that I talked about to happen, you would have to have, I think, you would have to have it at least be a lot easier and a lot more likely to succeed if you had a digital world currency. And again, that's something where the groundwork is being laid for. You would also have to have people okay with the idea of governments constantly surveilling them and listening into their conversations with very little privacy. People would have to be cool with that and on board with that. And that's getting more and more okay. People would have to be okay with the idea of maybe some authoritarian leadership in certain times or uh, martial law, for example, in certain times where... It's very different than the classical political structure that a lot of people have been used to for their whole lives and for the past few, maybe maybe 100 years or so. But people will have to be um, brought on board to this idea that maybe government should play a larger role. Maybe there should be more crackdowns. Maybe there should be less liberty, less privacy. Maybe there should be more censorship. And that's, again, something that's really playing out where this whole idea of disinformation is being fought against. And there's these crazy conspiracy theories going around. And I admit, some of them probably are crazy conspiracy theories, but also some of them are probably true. So um, I, I think, personally, it's up to the individual to look at the facts, to go back and look at the research and figure out what to believe. But you need to have all the information. Whereas many other people are getting more on board with the idea that someone needs to censor and filter all this information so that we don't have any fake news. We can't handle fake news. You know, that's very bad. And so a lot of people are getting more on board with this. So that's what I'm talking about, about these ideas starting to get normalized, where at one point in time, maybe a decade ago, these would have sounded crazy. But now it's kind of commonplace, sort of like the Trump presidency, where there's a new just major event, major crisis, major quote that gets blown up in the media that happens every week, just about. It's crazy. The media cycle just continues and continues and all these things that are the equivalent of some of the biggest deals that went down in previous presidents' terms, they are happening over and over again in President Trump's terms, and that's becoming the new normal. And with that, you've got something like 
um, the Epstein case. And that's something I've referred to multiple times where if I would have told you five years ago, 10 years ago, that there would be this big corruption conspiracy case where there was a an underage prostitution ring that was being ran and you had the Saudi royal family, the British royal family, the Clintons, the Bushes, uh, Bill Gates, like all these huge names in the world of finance and the corporate world and the academic world and political world all around the world. And all of them are tied into this. And there's all this video and photographic evidence that the FBI seized and they have. And all of this stuff is going down. And if I would have told you this years ago that this would play out and then a few weeks later, the story would be over, that one person would take the blame, he would get killed or kill himself or get disappeared or get extracted, whatever you want to say, but that he would basically be dealt with a few weeks after after being in jail, and then the whole story would drop, you would say there's no way. I was actually talking about this as it was happening, saying that I don't believe there's any way these major players are actually going to get investigated and get punished and get thrown in jail. And this stuff is not going to get out. That's not, to me, that didn't seem realistic. A lot of people gave me pushback from that, saying that, well, there is no way. Look at all this evidence. Look at all this stuff. This is a huge case, a huge conspiracy, huge corruption case. People are going down. Heads will roll. This is going to take down entire power families. And sure enough, yeah, disappeared. You've got the impeachment. Look over here or look over there. Iran is, you know, the next major threat and we're going to go to war with them. Oh, well, never mind. Oh, coronavirus, worldwide pandemic. Let's focus on that. And all of these things are real events. All of these things do deserve some attention uh, to an extent. I don't know about the impeachment, but they at least um, do deserve some attention. But the Epstein case was like the biggest case of corruption and conspiracy in modern times, and it largely just went away. And again, this is another thing where if I would have mentioned this years ago, people wouldn't believe me. If I would have mentioned that there would be the National Guard declaring martial law because of a virus outbreak in multiple states across the U.S., people would say, you know, that's a little crazy. I don't think that would actually happen. There would be some major pushback. Not only is there not major pushback, most people are welcoming these things that are happening. And so it's just, it's a very strange time to be living out. And I want to highlight a lot of these different aspects. And I, I just want to be candid about my personal opinion of things. These are my personal opinions. So I, I do believe that there was an economic recession or depression that was going to happen no matter what. I have, again, talked about that before, that we're overdue for a major market crash. I've listed all the reasons why and the issues and the things that will come up from that. And I, I do believe that. And it could be that coronavirus is just the spark that lit the fire, and that is the reason why. It could be that it's a manufactured event that was purposefully let out, a biological weapon, and with that, it is a more controlled demolition of the economy and of the stock market, um, and that would also make sense. I probably feel they're both probably equally likely, but either way, there is this major economic impact, and it does appear to be more like a controlled demolition. You could say the same thing about 9-11, to bring back that parallel, where the Twin Towers, uh, let's get away from the ten Twin Towers, go over to the other building, the other World Trade Center building that collapsed that day that did not get hit by a plane. It probably was a controlled demolition. And 
that is something that was then blamed on the terrorist attacks. And uh, yeah, probably not. There is also plenty of debate over whether the Twin Towers themselves came down because of the planes that flew into them or because of later explosions and different things that I will not get into. You can dig into that yourself. But there does appear to be at least some degree of a controlled demolition involved here with multiple things. There were multiple cases that were being investigated where all the evidence was being held at the exact places that got hit by planes, including the Pentagon. And so it's, yeah, there there are coincidences and it could be nothing. It could be everything. You never know. But same thing appears to be happening here where we have this um, this demolition that feels controlled and it could be, but we, we don't know for sure. And we may never know. We may never know about 9-11. We may never know about this. But we can at least look at what's going on and see how these things are shifting and playing out and use these historical parallels to better understand them. So with that, I want to get into something else that is more, I guess, kind of background backdrop um, information that you should have if you're going to take more of this perspective on things, more of the controlled demolition perspective. And that would be two uh, different, um, more philosophical ideas, but one I've talked about before, the other one is new, but you've probably heard of, I would imagine. The first would be Fabian strategy. And again, that's something that I have talked about before, about the Fabian socialists, and you can go back and listen to that if you don't remember, that has been covered. But the Fabian strategy as a whole, I do want to highlight again, and I'll just read the first little section that comes from Wikipedia, just the standard kind of definition. And it says, The Fabian strategy is a military strategy where pitched battles and frontal assaults are avoided in favor of wearing down an opponent through a war of attrition and indirection. While avoiding decisive battles, the side employing this strategy harasses its enemy through skirmishes to cause attrition, disrupt supply, and affect morale. Employment of this strategy implies that the side adopting this strategy believes time is on its side, but may also be adopted when no feasible alternative strategy can be devised. So that's the idea of the Fabian strategy as a whole. With the Fabian socialists that I've talked about previously, they applied that to more of a social engineering perspective where they could take over political parties, whole countries, things like this, steer countries in a certain direction by employing this strategy where you basically have a very long-term outlook on things and you just do little shifts here and there and you just kind of steer things. You're behind the scenes, you're not out in front and you try to control both sides of a debate. So for example, if there was going to be a relief bill because of coronavirus, then you would have one Democrat propose a bill for $2 trillion to be spent on this relief bill. And then you'd have someone on the other side of the aisle, say a Republican, say, no, we can't have $2 trillion. We can only do $1.5 trillion. You know, that's way too much. We got to be reasonable here, fiscally conservative. And so then these bills get voted on and one of the two gets picked. It doesn't really matter which, because either way, there's over a trillion dollars that just got voted in. And that is more of the Fabian strategy of uh, policy enacting, I guess you could say. And that's something that 
could be at play here, where we see a lot of these new policies, new bills being implemented, new strategies politically being implemented, these power shifts that are going on that seem to have their roots far back decades before and are only now really starting to come into their own. And so that that's something to just uh, have the perspective on and keep in mind. The other one I wanted to mention was Hegelian dialectic. That is a very important one and very applicable to current situations. With the Hegelian dialectic, probably the simplest way to explain it, one of the most common ways is to say that it's all about problem, reaction, solution. That is the main thing where there is a problem, there is a reaction and response to that problem, and then there is a solution that is sought and adopted because of that original problem and the reaction that took place afterwards. And so this comes from the philosopher Hegel, and this is just one of the things that he is known for, one of probably the most famous. And this is something that could be applied on many different levels to many different things, but applying it to our current situation and recognizing that many of these groups, many of these foundations, many governments, many individuals that are ones I've talked about in previous episodes related to corruption and conspiracy have openly talked about this strategy and definitely played it out in other scenarios. But we see that if you want to have something accomplished, let's say there's some sort of thing that you want to happen, let's say a technocracy, let's say that's the ultimate goal and you want that to happen. Well, how are you going to get that to be implemented when most people are not really on board with that idea. Well, what you would have to do is you input that into this equation of the Hegelian dialectic. And so you would input technocracy as the solution. That's what you want to happen in the end. That is your final solution is technocracy. Well, how do you go about implementing that? Well, you go back to the step before, a reaction. You have to get people to actually want that. And in order for them to want that solution, they have to be reacting in a certain way. They have to be looking for a more technocratic response. They have to be looking for experts to help them and make decisions and not politicians. They have to be comfortable with giving up a lot of their data and being surveilled a lot of the times. That is something that you would need. That would have to be a reaction. That would be a reaction to something. It's not just going to come up out of nowhere. People aren't just going to start being okay with these things. You know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, no one would be on board with these types of ideas. Today, eh, not so much. A lot of people are totally on board. And so this is something that does shift slowly over time. But if you really want to shift completely to a technocracy, you've got to have people uh, begging for these things to be implemented. You have to have people in that, that frame of mind looking for these types of solutions. And they see your solution of a technocracy and say, yes, that's what we need. Let's do it. Well, of course, this has to be reaction to something, and that goes to the first step, the problem. So there has to be a problem that causes this specific reaction, and that then will lead them to the solution that you will provide them conveniently. And so the problem, let's input our current situation, coronavirus. So you have this massive worldwide pandemic. Here is your problem. We know, and we have run simulations many times throughout the past few decades, and we know how these likely will play out. So we have this problem of 
the virus, the global pandemic, and that leads to a certain reaction that we likely know will happen already due to many different reasons why we have already researched that. And then we do know what the solution is we want to offer. And so we want to prime people to be asking for that solution, and then we'll implement it and we get to where we want to go. And so you could use that process of problem reaction solution, which is how most people respond in the world. That's how most people live their lives. And uh, Richard Grove, someone from the podcast Peace Revolution, he says that with Hegelian dialectic, what we need to do is implement thinking in between these different steps. So you have a problem, then you think critically, then you have your reaction, then you think critically before you develop your solution. And that kind of messes up this controlling mechanism if it is being used in a controlling mechanist type of a way. But if you don't have thinking, then you just have a problem. People just react automatically. Then they see the solution and they go right for it. And it it works very well. It's kind of a beautiful plan and a, a good way of manipulating large groups of people or nations or individuals, whatever you want to apply that to. But that seems to be something that could potentially be happening here. And if you want that to happen, you do want to ideally have some sort of control over that problem, or you employ the Fabian strategy and you just wait. You have the long-term view. Eventually, a crisis will happen. There'll be a pandemic. There'll be a major market crash. There'll be some big war that comes along. You know, Whatever it may be, you kind of just wait on the sidelines. You slowly implement a lot of the background infrastructure. And every time a crisis comes up and an event happens, then you take full advantage. And you could say that with 9-11. And I'm sure you'll be able to say that with this coronavirus pandemic as well, where Full advantage was taken. They used this problem reaction solution equation to implement a lot of these different things. And that gets us closer and closer and closer. Then when the event occurs, then that is something that will shift us fully into a total technocracy. And again, this is my theory. This is my opinion. We'll see if it plays out. Time will tell. But so far, it does seem to be fitting very well. So moving on from these different strategies, the Hegelian dialectic and the Fabian strategy that you should keep in the back of your mind and see how this really does play out because it is very interesting to pay attention to, I want to move on to another set of quotes. So especially in the corruption and conspiracy episodes that I did, I did a lot of quotes because a lot of it sounds a little crazy and I definitely want you to feel that I have researched this very well and there is plenty of factual evidence and information to back up what I'm saying. So uh, I want to go over a few quotes that will kind of guide the thinking and some of these different aspects that I've been bringing up. So I'll start off with something from the Technocrat magazine in 1938. And that's the time frame when technocracy really started to come up. It was really in the 30s that um, it had its high point. And the quote is this, Technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. And so that's um, a definition of a technocracy by them. I will probably do a whole episode or set of episodes at the end of these interviews on what technocracy is as a whole and go into detail. But to give you a rough idea, if you haven't figured it out over the past few interviews, it seems like most of the people I interview are not very familiar with the term and with the concepts behind it. But 
I at least want to give you a bit of a primer here um, before I go into detail further on in this season, or maybe I'll do a whole season next season about it. We will see. But the next one is one that brings in uh, another name you should be familiar with. This is the big new Brzezinski. He's someone that I discussed multiple times in the Corruption and Conspiracy episodes. Again, lots of links to Corruption and Conspiracy here. And so I'll go ahead and read this. I got this from Technocracy News and Trends by author Patrick Wood, who has literally written the book on technocracy from this perspective. And on his website, he lays this out. In 1970, Zbigniew Brzezinski was a young political science professor at Columbia University, the same place where technocracy was born in 1932. He authored a book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, that caught the eye of the global banker David Rockefeller. Together, they subsequently co-founded the Trilateral Commission in order to create a, quote, new international economic order. So that definitely should ring a bell or throw up a red flag. Uh, You got Rockefeller, you've got the Trilateral Commission, you've got the idea of a new economic order, international even. Yeah, Um, and it is true that Columbia University is where the, at least the mainstream uh, technocracy idea and movement really took hold. I believe that's where Technocracy Inc. came out of, which was the major organization for that. And yeah, and that's happens to be where Brzezinski came out of. And he obviously definitely has views that are very similar. So I looked up that book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. I have not been able to uh, listen to that. I would do an audio book. But yeah, things have been a little hectic lately between all of these interviews I've been doing and uh, the coronavirus deal. There, there's a lot going on. So I have not gone through a lot of new material in the form of books. I've been able to keep up mostly on my podcasts, at least, and do some research. But um, I, I did look up some excerpts, at least, and I want to read a few to you here. These are from Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. He says, quote, The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. And in another section, he says, quote, In the technotronic society, the trend would seem to be towards the aggregation of the individual support of millions of uncoordinated citizens, easily within the reach of magnetic and attractive personalities, exploiting the latest communications techniques to manipulate emotions and control reason. So you should see some parallels to modern times with those things, with the rise of uh, many populist movements there in that last quote, um, which he talks about with the reach of magnetic and attractive personalities, and then also exploiting the latest communications techniques to manipulate people. Um, Yes, you definitely see that with mass media today. And when he talks about the technotronic era and continuously being able to surveil everyone, store all that data and retrieve it instantaneously... This was not possible when he was writing this book. And so if you go back to the 60s and 70s, this was still sci-fi. Today, this is life. This is the way things are. 
And so it's interesting how things change and how things play out, but that should give you a rough idea of some of the aspects of a technocratic society, of a technocracy that people involved with this movement, these people are very influential. Look up the life of Zbigniew Brzezinski and you will see one of the most influential people of modern times. And so these are big names. Rockefeller, very big names. The Gate Foundation. You have Bill Gates, started Microsoft. Yes, these are very big names. Let's move on to another more modern parallel that is definitely tied to this same idea. It is something structured very similarly to a technocracy, if not just the same thing wrapped in a different paper. And that would be the idea of sustainable development And I'll go ahead and read another quote here from David Rockefeller, who is just referenced in relation to Brzezinski and starting the Trilateral Commission. This is David Rockefeller. He's speaking at the June 1991 Bilderberg meeting, which we have talked about the Bilderberg group a little bit before as well. Um, uh, Then Governor Bill Clinton was there, as well as many other very influential people as every Bilderberg meeting is. But uh, when David Rockefeller spoke, he was quoted as saying, quote, We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. He then went on to explain, quote, It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjugated to the lights of publicity during those years. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government, the supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite, and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. So, Again, we're talking about a world order. We're talking about uh, the rule of an intellectual elite. And yes, this is uh, the idea of technocracy if you really get into it. But um, again, a big name tied to all these things. And yeah, let's just go ahead and move on here. So uh, I pulled this from another website. I believe it was the Patrick Wood one, Technocracy News and Trends, but I'm not 100% on that at least. And unfortunately, I did not save the link for it. But you can, I'm sure, type in the quote or email me and I will do the research myself, figure out where it came from if you are interested. So the article says, the latest United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report led Eric Holthus, a grist writer, to tweet enthusiastically, quote, the world's top scientists just gave rigorous backing to systematically dismantle capitalism as a key requirement to maintaining civilization and a habitable planet. End quote. It then goes on to say, The sentiment is not new. Three years ago, while pushing for the Paris Climate Accord, UN climate official Christina Fugueres described the strategy this way, quote, This is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. End quote. And so that's talking about changing from capitalism to a new economic order. That sounds familiar. Yes, we talked about that earlier as well. And talking about the world's top scientists in the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, talking about how scientists and these specialists will be a key requirement to dismantle capitalism and maintain civilization and a habitable planet. This is all about sustainable development. 
coming out of a lot of this, you had the meeting where they decided on the idea of Agenda 21, an agenda for the 21st century that came out of the UN, and that was all about sustainable development, which then got updated to Agenda 2030, and it has gotten broader and broader. But all of it, if you really dig into it, is very similar to the idea of technocracy. It's a new economic order. It's more about experts, less about politicians. There is a big focus on energy being the main unit to focus on versus money and profits. It's not capitalism. It's something different. And it's all about collecting data and making decisions based on that data and all these kinds of things. That is sustainable development. That is technocracy. That is all pretty much the same thing. And again, that's related to air that is what I've been talking about in these interviews that I've mentioned multiple times and will get into further. So I just want to point those things out that there is a history here, there is a trend here, and it is continuing during this current crisis, if not escalating even further. So that's another thing that is a little bit interesting that I wanted to point out. Um, The other bits that I wanted to say are related to a potential timeline that I find at least very intriguing. Uh, Don't know if it's true or not, obviously, once you hear it, but it's interesting. And then also some of the previous scenarios that have happened. I'll mention two of them. I've already mentioned Event 201. We'll also talk about Lockstep. And I'll just give you a brief overview of these because, uh, again, it's very interesting that these scenarios have already been played out by the big foundations that I have already covered in previous episodes as being... Uh, less than savory, should we say. So the timeline that I was referring to is one that I will start off with uh, an article from the New York Times, actually. The article was titled, Deadly Germ Research is Shut Down at Army Lab Over Safety Concerns. And this was back in August of last year, 2019. And at the, uh, it goes on to explain that Fort Detrick is the name of the lab, and they were working on uh, different pathogens and different bioweapons, and the CDC shut them down over issues with uh, things getting out, or the possibility, at least, of things getting out. Um, At the end of the article, there was another little interesting bit. It said, quote, In 2009, research at the Institute in Fort Detrick was suspended because it was storing pathogens not listed in its database. The Army Institute also employed Bruce E. Ivins, a microbiologist who was a leading suspect, but who was never charged, in the anthrax mailings in 2001 that killed five people. Dr. Irvins died in 2008, apparently by suicide. So that was a little interesting. But the point is that there was this facility that was shut down due to concerns about a pathogen leaking out back in August of 2019. Now, shortly after that, you started to see a lot of really bad flu cases. It was a really bad year for the flu, a bad flu season, and a lot of them were a little more respiratory in nature than normally occurs. And so some people are speculating now that uh, the coronavirus has been around for longer than they say. Italy has officially said that there were cases in Lombardy before the 
the first case in China was discovered. And so it probably has been around a little earlier. Um, just after this Fort Detrick was shut down, then there was some military games that were held in Wuhan, China. And at those games were military personnel from the U.S. that China says were sick. And so there's that. Another interesting theory that's floating around is that the vaping illnesses, these mysterious illnesses that popped up around August of 2019, right after Fort Detrick got shut down, they were respiratory in nature and had pretty much all the same symptoms as coronavirus. And there were people dying from it, and it was a big deal. And if you pair that with a really bad flu season, or so they say, you could have the conspiracy theory play out where a pathogen escaped from Fort Detrick. It was a bioweapon that the U.S. was working on. Then it did spread to Wuhan at the military games, and that is where the first cases were actually admitted because when it got out in the U.S., probably got covered up. When things got too big to cover up, then you blame it on something else. And let's say it's vitamin E oil and e-cigarettes. And so you can have a scapegoat there, even though that wasn't completely confirmed and that kind of just disappeared after a little while. Uh, so it's a little interesting there. But then you also had the really bad flu season. And I personally know of people who have said they were sick with the flu, but it was worse than normal. And they had some uh, symptoms that were exactly what coronavirus is supposed to be and that this happened like in January of 2020. So a few months before you officially had the first case in the U.S. of coronavirus. So it's really interesting. I think some of this actually will come out in time as far as when it started maybe and that kind of thing. I highly doubt we'll ever get the full story, but that's a, I would say that is a conspiracy theory. That is definitely not fact, although it's made up of different various facts. Um, it is definitely theoretical. I'm not sure if I'm 100% on board with it, but it is the timeline that makes the most sense out of all the ones that I have heard. Makes a lot more sense than uh, eating a dead bat and then it escaping in China, but somehow mysteriously it existed before that in other countries. It, that doesn't really seem to play out. So we'll see, but that was an interesting timeline that I wanted to give to you guys as I came across it. The next thing and probably final thing I wanted to cover in this episode were the scenarios that have been performed previously before this event happened. So you had one in, I believe it was 2010, where the Rockefeller Foundation ran a scenario called Lockstep. And it was very similar where you had, well, actually, instead of me describing it, let me just read some things that I pulled from the scenario itself from the Internet Archive. So, quote, the lockstep scenario describes, quote, a world of tighter, top-down government control and more authoritarian leadership with limited innovation and growing citizen pushback, end quote. In 2012, which was two years after the report's publication, and, quote, extremely virulent and deadly, end quote, strain of influenza originating with wild geese brings the world to its knees, infecting 20% of the global population and killing 8 million people in just seven months. Quote, the majority of them healthy young adults, end quote. It devastates global economies and ruptures international trade 
but not everyone, the Rockefeller Foundation makes clear, is hit equally. Countries of Africa, Southeast Asia, and Central America suffer the worst, quote, in the absence of official containment protocols, end quote. It wouldn't be the Rockefeller Foundation if someone wasn't licking their lips at the thought of a mass die-off in the global south. But Western democracies also pay the ultimate price. Quote, the United States' initial policy of strongly discouraging citizens from flying proved deadly in its leniency, accelerating the spread of the virus, not just within the U.S., but across borders, end quote. The report warns, but remove such obstacles as individual rights, and you have a recipe for surviving, even thriving in the event of a pandemic, the foundation gushes. Quote, a few countries did fare better, China in particular. The Chinese government's quick imposition and enforcement of mandatory quarantine for all citizens, as well as its instant and near hermetic sealing off of all borders, saved millions of lives, stopping the spread of the virus far earlier than in other countries and enabling a swifter post-pandemic recovery, end quote. So I think you get the idea. This was a scenario ran by the Rockefeller Foundation, and it was one in which you had this global pandemic of a virus that gets out, ruins the global economy, global trade, all these kinds of things, and it praises basically authoritarian action to that. Now, as you probably can tell, I got this article from a site that was uh, definitely not pro-Rockefeller by any means, and definitely very critical of this scenario. But um, the quotes were actually from the scenario itself, and I had pulled up that scenario, but this seemed to be the most concise summary of it that I pulled. So I went ahead and went with this one. Um, another interesting thing where it talks about China and its response that actually has been the Chinese response to the coronavirus largely, and it probably would have worked if the virus was not already in other places, which according to my theoretical timeline here, probably it was. Italy said that I think 80% of its cases can be traced back to the U.S., at least cases from another country. And so, yeah, there's that. Maybe if it did truly originate in China, it might have actually been contained in China or at least close to it. But, you know, we'll never know. That's a scenario that did not actually play out. But it's interesting just to see that they did the scenario. It's a very similar thing. And we see very similar outcomes that are happening now and very similar things being praised and being shunned. Now, more recently, you had an event called Event 201. And this was hosted by the Gates Foundation, but had many people from lots of different groups. You had people from the UN, from Johnson & Johnson, from, I don't even know, there are all kinds of corporations and international groups that were involved with this. And so I'll read some of them later on in this, but I want to just read what I pulled from the official website itself, from the Gates Foundation website, and I'll read it to you and you can get an idea of what this event was. Now, this event was ran just a few months before the coronavirus went live, and I'll go ahead and just read straight from the website of what this was. So as far as the summary is concerned, the way the scenario is listed out, it says, quote, Event 201 simulates an outbreak of a novel 
zoonotic coronavirus transmitted from bats to pigs to people that eventually becomes efficiently transmissible from person to person, leading to a severe pandemic. The pathogen and the disease it causes are modeled largely on SARS, but it is more transmissible in the community setting by people with mild symptoms. Since the whole human population is susceptible, during the initial months of the pandemic, the cumulative number of cases increases exponentially, doubling every week. And as the cases and deaths accumulate, the economic and societal consequences become increasingly severe. So it's interesting they modeled it after SARS, which was another respiratory deal. Yeah, interesting. So the next part I wanted to highlight was if you go into their solutions and recommendations, they have a whole separate page for that. I'm not going to get into all of them, but just some interesting aspects that I pulled out. It's titled Public-Private Cooperation for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, A Call to Action. Quote, The next severe pandemic will not only cause great illness and loss of life, but could also trigger major cascading economic and societal consequences that could contribute greatly to global impact and suffering. Efforts to prevent such consequences or respond to them as they unfold will require unprecedented levels of collaboration between governments, international organizations, and the private sector. There have been important efforts to engage the private sector in epidemic and outbreak preparedness at the national or regional level. However, there are major unmet global vulnerabilities and international system challenges posed by pandemics that will require new, robust forms of public-private cooperation to address. Event 201 Pandemic Exercise conducted on October 18th 2019 vividly demonstrated a number of these important gaps in pandemic preparedness, as well as some of the elements of the solutions between the public and private sectors that will need be needed to fill them. The Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, World Economic Forum, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation jointly propose the following. And so the two that stood out to me in particular, they're all Interesting, depending on the perspective you read them from. We had one that says, quote, International organizations should prioritize reducing economic impacts of epidemics and pandemics. So they talk about how international organizations play a very major role in this and need to step up. Um, Corporations in general need to be seeking more regulation to help control and prevent these types of things. And we see that happening now as well. Some of the groups mentioned in this recommendation section were the international health regulations, the banking system, and global and national economies that are too essential to fail. The World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, regional development banks, national governments, and foundations. So yes, many of the groups that have come up many times in past episodes, they're the ones that are supposed to take the reins and take control of this situation. Now, the next recommendation that was a little interesting was that, quote, governments and the private sector should assign a greater priority to developing methods to combat mis- and disinformation prior to the next pandemic response. So yeah, it's all about controlling information and censorship and stopping conspiracy theories. These types of things are very important for controlling this pandemic. 
which is very interesting. And we do see that playing out as well. Heck, you even have people asking Google and Facebook to censor content and stop fake news and all these kinds of things. People are asking for it. This is the reaction that people have had to some of the problems that have come up that appear to be more engineered. Look at the 2016 presidential race. You had... I think it was around $100,000 that was spent on Facebook ads, which is virtually nothing for a political campaign. And that was said to have uh, influenced the election and gotten Donald Trump elected. And that came from Russia, they say, and that had this huge impact, when in reality, it probably had little to no impact. But people freaked out that this fake news went around and that it influenced the elections. And so they had this reaction of what that meant and how bad that was and that something needed to happen. And so they reached for that solution of, well, we need to stop this fake news. We need to stop this misinformation, this disinformation. And Facebook government, please help stop this stuff. We can't have this anymore. And there's your solution. So again, going back to Galian dialectic related to all of these things, yes, it plays out over and over again. As James Pilato says in Media Monarchy, it is a rich tapestry, and it really is. When you really start to see all the different connections and these names that keep appearing, these concepts that keep appearing, these foundations that keep appearing, yes, it is a rich tapestry. To uh, bring about one of those concepts and names that has come up in other episodes as well, uh, Bill Gates. He is a big eugenicist, and so his dad helped run Planned Parenthood. I have definitely talked about that when I did the episode on eugenics and probably another episode as well. And so you see that somebody that's very big on eugenics that believes the world can only sustain about 1 billion people, which is much less than it does now, that person is trying to save the global population from a pandemic that would get levels potentially down to closer to what he wants. Uh, Yeah, very interesting that his foundation is taking the front, the front and center role in responding to this pandemic when he himself and his foundation has pushed for things like population control around the world. So, yeah, it's very interesting. There's probably a lot of corruption and conspiracy behind the scenes that 10 years from now, someone will do an episode like I did in previous episodes and kind of lay out the whole scenario and everyone involved and some of these different connections and can be a little more factual. Right now, we don't have the facts. We're in the middle of this thing. So we'll see what happens. But that's the majority of what I wanted to lay out as far as an overview of what I'm seeing in this current situation, this coronavirus pandemic. And so I'll consider this episode more of an overview of this special episode series or whatever I end up calling it. And then the next episode, maybe two, we'll see how long it takes. I'll talk about some of the specific changes that I am seeing, these ideas that are being reinforced, these things that are directly linked to the parallels that I have been talking about in previous episodes and related to technocracy and this type of thing. And so I'll get into some of these different shifts societally, politically, economically, these types of things. And that will be probably the next two episodes would be my guess. So I'm sorry if this episode was a little jumbled and scattered. I think it was a little bit. My notes are a little jumbled and scattered. And this is something that is currently occurring. So it's a little difficult to get the hard facts and get a lot of commentary on it and all this kind of stuff. It's just there's a lot of conspiracy theories flying around. 
as well as a lot of facts that are a little fishy flying around. And so, yeah, this is not my normal thing. This isn't how I normally do things. I don't host a news show. So, yes, this presentation might be a little less polished than others. But hopefully as I get into the next few, I'll get a little more back into my groove as we talk about more macro system level aspects of the economy and political shifts and societal changes and these types of things. That's more what I have focused on in previous episodes and I'm more comfortable with that and I can flow a little better and outline that better myself. So that's what's coming up next. And then once I finish with this special current events series, we will get back into the interviews and pick back up then with Benjamin Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. That was a very good interview. Another long one that might have been the longest one. I think that's going to be a four-parter. I'm not really sure, uh, but we get into a lot of the history. So with Steve Guerrero, we talked about the history mainly related to the church and some of the uh, other outgrowths of that. And with Benjamin Jacobs, we get into more of the broad history related to economics and politics and uh, society and that kind of thing. And so that's um, the rest of the historical context that you'll get in that. He gives me a little bit of pushback. He doesn't necessarily see things uh, flowing as smoothly as I do, but it's it's interesting, and hopefully you will enjoy that interview and uh, catch a little bit of that where he is kind of going against maybe what I'm saying, and then we kind of end up meshing mostly in the end, and so that'll be the next interview, and then after that will be the one I did with Panoptic with the two hosts of that show, and that'll be more focused on things like technology and surveillance, and uh, I do get into technocracy in that one, and and that, uh, I feel, was a very interesting one. It's not really in the same format of, as most of my episodes, but that was because it was a collaboration episode where they are releasing it on their feed. They have actually released the first part as of this recording, and they broke it into multiple parts as well. And so that was an episode for them as well as for me. So I kind of fit with the format that they did and that worked really well. I think that turned out to be a very good episode or set of episodes. So that will be after that. And currently that is the last interview and then we'll move on with the rest of the season. So that is the plan going forward. Hopefully this is a sidetrack that you enjoy. It should at least be relevant. Uh, whether you agree with a lot of this stuff or not, at least it should put a lens that you can put on your eyes where you can see things from a different perspective and catch some of these different things that are coming out that you probably would not have caught if you were not thinking from this point of view and um, focusing on these different buzzwords and names and organizations and things like that. So I think that's it for now. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for still tuning in, even though the world's ending outside. I agree greatly appreciate that. Thank you to my patrons in particular who have not dropped off, even given probably some financial hardship. If you do drop off, I do understand. And so anyone that wants to support more independent media of different types like mine, please feel free to go to the Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and support monetarily my producing of this podcast. That would be greatly appreciated. And there are also some perks that come along with that. So that might be something you're interested in for that reason as well. 
And for everyone else, overall, thank you for listening. That is uh, some really big support. Just seeing people downloading and listening to the episode is very encouraging, and that is very supportive. Those of you that have left reviews and ratings, that is extremely helpful. It seems to be not something most people do, but if you are willing to take the time to do it, it is something that makes a big impact, and I would really appreciate If you want to keep up to date with things, you can follow my podcast, this podcast on Twitter. That would be at Foundations PC. And I post every time I have a new episode that comes out or if I have an appearance on other episodes, which I've done now a few times. So when I do that, I post it on Twitter and give a link and that kind of stuff. And so if you want to keep up to date with that, as well as maybe some conspiracy theories, as well as plenty of memes that are usually humorous representations of lots of corruption and conspiracy and problems that are going on in today's world. So that might be something you're interested in. If so, follow on Twitter as well. Other than that, please email me if you have any opinions, any feedback, any requests, anything at all. If you want to know more about some of my sources that I've used in any episodes, always feel free to email me. I will get that to you. If you want the quotes in particular, I can get those to you. Whatever you want, send me an email. I will respond to you. I will read it. And I will try to accommodate whatever it is that you are requesting. Or if you just have some feedback for me or a comment to make, I will definitely read it. I will definitely consider it. And I will probably respond to you as well. So please feel free to do so. That is another way to support is by communicating. And so there have been a few people that have done that. Thank you very much. That's it. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.